Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray alongside Jackie from the Jackie Daily Show. Jackie, I was thinking before you came on here, uh, I've probably known you now four, five years ago. Well, I can tell you, we had, um, uh, I used to have a show at the Global Energy Leadership Podcast, and we had a Trump's first 100 days in office energy roundtable discussion many moons ago with you and David Blackman and... Uh, Maybe Lawrence Friedman, Friedman, I can't remember who it was. And so it's been at least four years, uh, maybe a little bit longer. Um, so it's good to get you on this program. How are you doing today, ma'am? I'm great. How are you, Ryan? Good, good. So we're going to get into, uh, it's a it's a collection of essays, but it's a book, if you will, a uh, collection of essays, Making Government Work, uh, which is a forward by Nikki Haley and Ronald Reagan, um, and edited by Ted Parker. But first, let's kind of, yes, there's my copy right here. Um, let's kind of uh, recap so I said, Jackie, for the Jackie Day Show, for folks who aren't familiar with your work, why don't you tell them a little, about your, a little bit about yourself? Okay, so I'm a lawyer by training and still a lawyer, licensed in three jurisdictions. Um, and so essentially what I do now is research for public policy uh, for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. So I'm a senior fellow specializing in energy and environmental issues. And when I'm not doing that, I do the Jackie Daly Show, which is on Glenn Beck's network, The Blaze. And also podcasts on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spotify, places like that, and available on the dial in Texas. If you're living in the Permian Basin out west, it's on 10 counties out there on KWEL 107 FM, 107.1 FM, pardon me, <laughs> 1070 AM. Okay. So I wanted to get you on because I, I saw this new book. So why don't you kind of maybe give us the, the genesis of this project? Um, you know, how did it come about? And um, obviously you have an energy background and policy research. So that's kind of why I'm assuming that you were asked to do it, obviously. But what, what's the genesis of this project? So, okay, if you look at the front of the book, you'll see with a foreword by Nikki Haley and Ronald Reagan, who, of course, bless his blessed soul, um, <laughs> has not been able to write a foreword in several decades. So what this is, this is hinting at, this is a sequel so the original Making Government Work came out in the 80s and Ronald Reagan wrote the foreword to the book. So they reprinted that foreword along with the new one from Nikki Haley. And what it's intended to be is really um, a policy prescription for, for policy for the states as opposed to the federal government. So it's an idea uh, you know, that all these conservatives and libertarians come together to lay out what is the ideal policy for the next decade for states. <clears throat> so thankfully I get the energy policy uh, because as you know, as you well know, most energy policy really does fall to the states, especially oil and gas regulation, which is most of what I talk about. Mm -hmm. I talk about other things too, but um, the idea is that um, Tam Parker, who is used to here at the bottom, state rep uh, here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, basically was tasked by Mary Spaeth Mary Spaeth is a very famous uh, public relations professional here in Dallas. She used to be head of media relations for the White House during Reagan. Her ex-husband, Tex Lazar, also worked for the Reagan White House. And he was the person who did Tam Parker's job uh, on the original version. So this is a sequel. Um, it's kind of a, um, honoring uh, Tex Lazar, Mary Spaeth, and all the people who wrote in the first book. So. That's the overview. It's got everything in it, right? It's got oh, yeah. uh, crime policy, right? It's got um, anything you can imagine uh, in addition to energy policy. So this is not an energy book per se. It's really probably um, 
at its best as a guide for state lawmakers, anyone voting for state lawmakers, um, executive officers in the states. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a, a guide to, I mean, most of the dominant issues they consider every day in a legislature. Yeah. And well, I like, I call it a collection of essays. I like that because you get different people with different strengths to kind of weigh in on a variety of topics instead of kind of one generalist kind of taking, you know, all of these yeah. issues that they might not be as strong in. And so uh, it's kind of, I, I enjoy those, um, those collection of essays, those books, as we call them um, for that perspective. So yours is on energy, obviously uh, I've done a little bit with energy. And so as have you, yeah. um, let's kind of go back. You know, if we look at where we've been as a country with, you know, especially the oil and gas, which is the you know the predominant, energy of the world. Um, things have changed a lot. And, you know, I'm 30, I turned 35, I'm eligible for president. So you can write me in if you want to, I'll take the vote. Um, but, you know, in my lifetime, the U.S. energy market has changed. It has changed dramatically just in the last 10 to 15 years. So maybe a, a short history version of the, of the policy changes that you've seen, some that you've liked and some that you haven't been a fan of. Right. So if you look back 15 years, uh, let's go back to 2005. Former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan came up to Congress where I was about to work the following year for seven years. And he said, we have a natural gas crisis in this country, sounding the alarm. What are we gonna do? How do you run a superpower without natural gas? Mm. And so at that time, we were importing about 70% of our oil from OPEC and others um, <clears throat> as well. The point is, People who were alive at that time and, and of a, had reached political consciousness by that time remember uh, the feeling of being dependent on Saudi Arabia, the Arab states, OPEC, Russia, and the consequences that that can bring. So it's before you and I were born, but many people will remember, have heard about the Arab oil embargo of 1973 and the Nixon price controls that only made it worse. And essentially, people had to wait in line to get gasoline. Mm -hmm. I mean, that sounds like something from the former Soviet bloc. That's not something that should happen here. And so thank God um, at about this time when Greenspan is going to Congress to sound an alarm, um, people here in Texas and particularly in the Dallas-Fort Worth area were perfecting hydraulic fracturing techniques, fracking uh, combined with horizontal drilling. And from there, over time, we became the number one natural gas producer on earth, the number one oil producer on earth. What a good day uh, when times are booming. Mm -hmm. And so we have about $50 trillion worth of hydrocarbons, actually just, I think just oil and gas uh, beneath federal lands alone. Understand about 90% of what we're producing is not on federal lands, mm -hmm. state and private lands. So plus, you know, on top of that, we're the Saudi Arabia of coal, <laughs> We're the Saudi Arabia of nuclear energy. No right. one does better than us. Um, and someday when we have the technology to store wind and solar, we're poised to really do well there too. I mean, because the US is in the wind corridor of North mm -hmm. America and we have a big sun belt. We have some of the best sun on earth. If you got to Death Valley and places like that. Bottom line, we went from a place of extreme dependence in the past mm -hmm. on hostile regimes that didn't really like us uh, to being able to produce our own right here at home. And that is an amazing game changer geopolitically. I mean, now, you know, to be fair, I mean, Nikki Haley did a great job at the United Nations. To be fair, 
she had a big hammer in her hand with right. U.S. energy security that other secretaries of state didn't have in the past, except you know, except uh, maybe Obama's last secretary of state. Mm-hmm. By the time they reached the second term, they had that, but but not before. So that's how the world changed so quickly, and really it, it would cement our superpower status for the foreseeable future because you have to have energy to be a superpower. There's right. no way around it. And um, that all was for the, for the good. It's great. So uh, not everyone celebrated this, um, but I certainly did. Yeah. So you have a quote in here. You say, um, you talk about uh, the U.S. energy, the, the EIA, as we call it, and uh, International Energy Agency confirmed that the Uni- United States and the rest of the world will run on at least 70% fossil fuels between now and 2040. So it's not just a historic thing. It's a projection moving forward. I would submit that probably that number is probably a little low, actually. <laughs> probably probably be higher be. than that. I think, and the reason I think that is because it's hard to project emerging markets and how much fossil fuel dependency they will have as they go to first world status. And if you look at this China's number, uh, their median income, the bottom end of their median income is like $3,500 U.S. a year. So that's a very, so that's their middle class, but the low end of their middle class is making $3,500. That's not a lot of oil and gas products they'd be buying and using. So as they go up, it's hard to, it's hard not to see how we don't increase that. Regardless, if this number's right, it's impossible as we sit here on October, whatever this is today, to imagine a world where oil and gas is not the predominant uh, force that it is, and it has been, and, and we've we've kind of abandoned that conversation to you know climate change and you know people in the ground, and that's just not practical. It is not practical. It, it, at all. Let me say one more thing: if you want to do that, I would I would say that you start checking your privilege. You should check your privilege because all of these emerging markets. <laughs> what do you say to them? Right. Well, what do you say to yourself? I mean, let's be serious. You don't know anyone who wants to live twenty four hours without fossil fuels. You don't. I mean, I. I say this to everyone, please, please, please do yourself and everyone else a favor before you go proselytizing and being self-righteous about this. Try in your own life, and I'm being serious, to walk the walk you're talking. So I want you not only to give up electricity, all except the 3, 3% that is wind and solar that you approve of, Right. Which, by the way, you can't have without fossil fuel backup. Yes, yes, well, oh, yes, right. <laughs> and you can't manufacture those turbines. Right. Without, I mean, there's a huge carbon footprint, right, to solar farms and to mm. wind turbines. I won't even go into all of that. But mm. attempt to divorce yourself from all of that. You're also going to remove yourself from the transportation sector, except your own legs or a horse, mm-hmm. you know, or an ox. Yeah. Um, and I'm not being cute. I'm being dead serious. And then attempt to live your life with no petrochemicals. Mm-hmm. So, so what I, I try to explain this, especially to younger teenagers and, and people in their early 20s. You know, the fact that I don't care what else we talk about with wind and solar, you cannot replace petrochemicals with wind and solar electrons, right? So mm-hmm. your your clothing, your pharmaceuticals, your electronics, um, Everything. I mean, those are all made of oil for crying out loud. They don't even know that. But no wonder they don't know it. They're not educated properly, right? right. In the schools. Um, Texas has a new curriculum, by the way, on hydrocarbons. It's quite good. It teaches these things. But as far as I know, other states don't. Um, so I explained this. And I'm just like, listen, break your energy into electricity, 
transportation, and petrochemicals. That's the basic three categories. Mm -hmm. And even if you're gonna make progress in the electricity part or the transportation part with more wind and solar, which is what they prefer, you're never gonna replace hydrocarbons, uh, petrochemicals. That, that's a huge part of our lives. It will never go away. Ryan, Jesus will come back before we stop using <laughs> petrochemicals, you know? It's just not gonna happen. And it's time that we get serious about this discussion and have a real conversation. Yeah, I've, I've, I've tried to parse it two ways. Um, the first thing I say is if you can hear me because we're on a podcast, then you are using oil and gas products. So be aware. Second thing, stop wherever you're at, unless you're hunting in the woods, look around everything that you see, everything that you see, um, like these little tiles, this microphone, all this, the wind panels, the solar panels, the wind farm, all of that comes from directly or indirectly oil and gas. It was delivered on a truck that had diesel to take that wind turbine out there. There's no, you know, and so you start breaking it down. Um, so if you want to get away from it, I've said, go live the Amish lifestyle. That's been my suggestion. And I'm not opposed to the Amish. I have no, no bone to pick with those people, but that's, that's what you're saying is you basically have to live the Amish lifestyle. And we've seen that conversation. Um, I don't know how people caught on to this, but during the pandemic, you saw the the satellite photo from China with the with the smog level over China, and then when they shut down, it went away, and then now they're saying you know it's coming back. It's like okay, that's a good reminder of what it would take to end. Um, you know, if you're if you're if you're concerned about global warming and uh, climate change and stuff like that, those are fine conversations to have. But to understand what we're talking about, it takes a pandemic to shut down the world. <laughs> to start to see noticeable change in the atmosphere in somewhere like China. And I don't think a lot of people got that. And I hope we can get that message out there now. It's like, we can talk about climate change, but let's just understand, you're talking about radical changes that we, that no one, you know, listen, we live in Texas. It's a hundred degrees in the, in the summer, in the wind, in the winter, the wind's going to blow like 60 miles an hour. It feels like <laughs> in Chile. So oh, yeah. I don't want to be outside the winter either. No, not at all. And I, I think that um, one good point to make about the pandemic, <clears throat> the world would not have survived economically much longer under a shutdown. So what you saw, if you were pleased with it, just know there was a finite lifespan right. to that kind of behavior before hundreds of millions of people would die, mm -hmm. right? We have to run our farms and agribusiness. We have to transport goods and healthcare. So the first thing is it's not realistic. Um, even though we were able to do it for a little while. The other thing is, I'm looking for this graph in my book. <clears throat> you did not see any noticeable change in air quality in the United States mm -hmm. during the shutdown. You saw that in China, you saw that in India. You can look at a photograph and see a difference in the skies and the air, right. not here. Um, so if you look at, I shared in my book and I maybe you can see this, but this is page, a graph from the yeah, US. Page 138, UK. yeah. Okay. So essentially, um, you can you can know that from 1970 till now, in this country, because of technology and innovation, we brought down the six federally regulated pollutants more than 70 percent. Mm -hmm. Lead came down more than 90 percent. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're an American right now, you're breathing better air than your grandparents or your great grandparents. I mean, it's really amazing mm -hmm. what we have done, and so. You didn't see those differences here. We actually will lead the world in clean air, uh, particularly when it comes to particulate matter, which is a deadly form of air pollution. Those are the really small particles that get into the lungs and don't come back out. Um, our country is the best among developed countries by a long shot. I mean, the idea that you know European countries or others would lecture us on clean air 
and clean water is absurd. We lead them by many, many <laughs> horse lengths. It's not even close. <laughs> well, I, I remember when I was in school in the mid nineties, um, you know, we would have our science book talk about acid rain. Now, maybe there's acid rain in the U.S. somewhere. I, I don't hear about those stories anymore, but apparently it was a thing before I was around, or at least we were taught that. But acid rain, to my knowledge, is, I don't know if eradicate is the right word, but I don't hear about acid rain anymore in the U.S. Uh, maybe it, you have it pop up here and there. You'd assume you'd hear about it. But as a child growing up, that was a big concern is acid rain. All this stuff's going to happen. It's like, no, no, we haven't because we have progressively gotten better and more cleaner. And when I was in China last uh, November, um, one of the things that uh, there was a, a gentleman there from um, with, with the government and he'd been in Scotland, I believe. And he's back in Beijing for the first time, in like five years. And so we're looking out the window. If you're by me, I'll send you a picture and you could like see the sun, but it's behind a cloud. It looks like it's a cloudy day, but it's not It's a smog. And he was saying that, you know, in five years, it was unbelievable how much uh, better the Beijing um, uh, skies were. And, and he said, every now and then we'll get, a, we'll, we'll get a, uh, a sunny day where you can see the sun. So the perspective is, you know, it's kind of lost upon us. When we go outside, we see the sun daily. I've been to Johannesburg, and you can just kind of see the cloud. Now, maybe L.A. is something kind of like that in the United U.S., but there's large swaths. <laughs> 99% of the U.S. is clear skies unless you've got a bunch of trees in your way. And that's not the case in some other parts of the world. No, not at all. I mean, um, I feel really bad for the people in other parts of the world. China's doing what they have to do to stay alive. You know, they've got 1.3 billion people. It's not easy to feed that many people. It's not easy to run that economy. Mm -hmm. They continue to build coal plants steadily as you and I speak right now mm -hmm. because they have to have energy. I don't know what people expect them to do. They're not going to starve their people or stall their economy um, because someone at the UN doesn't like it. So I, it's a matter of life or death. And you, you brought up nuclear earlier. I wanted, That's the thing I wanted to circle back to is that um, I've long been a proponent of nuclear and I've, I've, um, think, you know, when I was in China, that's, you know, what are y'all's thoughts on that? And they, I think 2030, they're trying to roll out some more nuclear stuff, but nuclear is the best solution for power generation for Beijing, Shanghai. You know, I think China's got 50 cities with over a million people, or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> that's the best solution is to have nuclear power plants in these places, because that would begin the process. You have the, the automotive problems and all that other stuff, but um, it would get them off the coal at least, but we've made nuclear where it's so expensive in the U.S. that people don't want to do it. Um, and it, it's, it, it's like, okay, well, we can't have a little gas. Nuclear is a good option. No, we can't have nuclear. Well, when it's all okay, that's fine when it has a spot, but we're, we're missing the boat on nuclear. I think nuclear is due for a comeback at some point. What are your thoughts? I'll tell you what, uh, my, most of my family worked in nuclear energy. I, I grew up right beside the American centrifuge plant where we made weapons grade uranium during the Cold War and then later oh, wow. commercial grade uranium. Um, my family still lives there. It was the most beloved employer in the land because it was good federal jobs. Um, I'll tell you this, it is the answer really, because you can, there's not much of a limit uh, as, it, as it stands now, the way that we do things um, has improved a lot since when it first got started. And it, it's really heartbreaking what's happened to the nuclear industry because you have one or two bad incidents mm -hmm. that, that were totally preventable. And I mean, I, look, I got to be careful how I say this because I don't want to sound like I'm taking aim at the Japanese. I'm certainly not. Mm -hmm. The Japanese have no natural resources for energy. Yeah, they're many, many options, you know. So they build this nuclear plant. But look, if they're on a fault line. Mm -hmm. The whole country is on a fault line. Mm -hmm. 
You know that you have tsunamis from time to time. You know you're going to have earthquakes. I, I just think that was not the answer for the Japanese mainland. They should be importing natural gas. They've got a whole treasure of it down near Australia. They could lock in a power purchase agreement for 20 years and have clean burning natural gas. That might be the one country. <laughs> There's more than one country on the fault line, but where I would not put a nuclear plant, but they did and it happened. Um, Chernobyl is the other incident people talk about. Listen, the Russians don't do things the way we do them. You know, they, they don't have the standards that we have. There were lots of mistakes made, didn't have to happen. And people are gonna say, well, mistakes happen from time to time. Yes, they do, but there is a right way to do it. And I think nuclear is terrific. I think it's so sad that we've seen what's going on now because in this country, it is artificially made expensive because of the protests and the endless environmental mm. impact studies that you already have conclusive good science. This is old science. Right. And they'll keep, 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 keep going, the, the activists will, until it becomes prohibitively expensive. And that's what's happened. It is not prohibitively expensive unless people decide for political reasons to make it that way. Well, and that's what we've seen is we've seen that with nuclear, it's uh, overregulated to where it's too expensive. But wind and solar, you've got tax credits, incentives, government programs where it wouldn't be feasible really without that. And so the the best source or the best alternative, the best option we have, we've overregulated. And some of the less appealing options from a production standpoint, we've made it viable. But the market hasn't said it's viable. The government's kind of gotten in there and kind of juked the stats, if you will. Well, it's kind of like saying, um, you know, let's imagine that you have Colgate and you have Crest mm -hmm. and the government subsidizes Crest mm -hmm. uh, so that they bring the price down to half. Mm -hmm. And then you say, oh, look, now Crest is so much cheaper than Colgate. Well, not really. You know what? If right. you get the, the government taking your tax money, Ryan and mine <laughs> and everyone else's right. and making something cheaper by subsidizing it, you can call it cheaper if you want to, but it's not. <clears throat> So one of the things you you mentioned on the book on uh, I think on page 142 here we go back to fracking for a second you said uh, it's, you talk about kind of the 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 genesis of fracking and kind of how it came to be you said the incentive for these innovations was simple profits the pioneer of the shell revolution are billionaires this is how America works now some of those folks um, you know Aubrey McClendon you know became depending on who you ask now or famous or infamous, you know, um, Harold Ham, some of those folks have kind of gotten a bad reputation, good reputation, but if you, we, we've, we've lost kind of this sense in America, whether it's, um, whether it's oil and gas or, or, or big business in general, is that there is substantial risk that has to happen to make substantial gains. Right. Um, and what you see, if you want to compare our economy to China, the China's Chinese economy, you know, they're not taking those same risks like we are. They're importing our technology and kind of co-opting it and then exporting it back out, but they're not taking the same type of risk. Uh, when you take that risk and you let someone try to invent the fracking technology or, or they do on their own, um, you will find people that come out that make a bunch of money and they're, they're bad people, but they also a lot of times do uh, or create a good that's that, that we all benefit from. And it's kind of hard to balance that out in, in America. It's like, well, okay, yes, I'm not getting to the Aubrey, Aubrey debate or the Harold Ham debate. Um, they made a lot of money. Uh, they made a lot of good decisions. They made a lot of bad decisions. Um, but we still want to incentivize that mentality that you can make a lot of money because that's where real innovation comes from, it seems. Well, I mean, think about Harold Hamm. <clears throat> Excuse me. He grew up in Oklahoma, the youngest of 13 kids, born to a sharecropper in a two-bedroom house. He had nothing, you know. He started from nothing. He worked 
from the time he was 17 at an oil patch, volunteering to do the jobs nobody else wanted to do, cleaning up the pits. He would work the late shifts all night long, go to school. This is a person who from day one busted his tail to mm. make it. And he didn't have envy. You know, he got to know these guys in the oil patch who had these like big, huge personalities. They were charismatic and they were characters. And he was attracted to that. And he wanted to figure out, you know, how do I take a page out of their book? And I love that. I, I love the attitude where you're not resentful because you weren't born into it or right. mom and dad didn't do this or that for you or open that door for you. He went out there and made it happen. And he took a lot of risk and he uh, had some wins and he had some lose losses. Um, but he ends up employing thousands of people, producing so much oil that makes this country more energy secure. Um, really, he he's symbolizes the American dream. And we want people to see that and to believe in that and to pursue that and to believe in themselves. And he's one of many, many, many people in this country, not just in Texas, not just in North Dakota. There are like 36 states that produce oil and gas. Um, and you'd be surprised at the thousands of companies with mom and pop shops who have benefited. And then of course, the millions of people who are on top of that land. So mm. they get royalties. Mm. Um, or you own a pension fund or a pension plan or a 401k that's invested in all of that and you made money too. You're more secure in your future because of what these people are doing. Mm -hmm. There's just so much upside and it's just a great American story that I tell constantly. I never get tired <laughs> uh, talking about, you know, what I think is, is good news. There's too much bad news. Mm -hmm. This is like the bright spot uh, in the economy and it's, it's still happening. It's still going on. Okay, so let's talk policy because it is a policy book. Um, you, you say in the book, it's a little bit further down from where I was, constitutionally and otherwise, the states have the legal right to govern themselves and most have a track record of success. Um, okay, maybe break down some of the misconceptions that people have about who's in charge of what, where, and when, and how that overlaps. Because obviously you do have, you know, the Texas Railroad Commission, but then you have FERC and you have you know, the Department of Energy. So kind of maybe spell out that and some of the misconceptions that you see um, for folks who aren't really in the energy industry. Well, we've reached the point where rightly or wrongly, often wrongly, the federal government just tries to take over everything. So people have the misconception that that's the way it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. if you don't remember an earlier time in history. Um, so for example, it's hard to even know where to start. Um, <laughs> when this country was first formed, the states had pretty much all of the rights, right. just about every right. For example, few people know um, that you have this first amendment right in the constitution to not have a state church, an established religion. Well, guess what? The states still had that right after the constitution was drafted. Most states had a compulsory established church that you had to belong to and you had to tithe to. And Massachusetts was the last to abolish theirs in 1822. So the states were superior in many ways, most ways. And then over time, the federal government grows and grows Enter World War One and the passage of the income tax, the federal income tax, that's where it all went wrong, right? Because now they can take money away from you and condition the return of it mm -hmm. on behavior. So <clears throat> as time progresses, all kinds of radical things happen, like in our lifetime, uh, the government tries to take over General Motors, AIG, um, you know, student loans, banking, um, and, and uh, healthcare, and I mean, that stuff would have been considered crazy even right. 30 years ago, outrageously crazy and radical 
and unthinkable to America's founders who drafted the constitution. They would never believe this is going on. So the first thing is you have to kind of <clears throat> reset yourself the way that a, a student of history does or that a lawyer does. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the lawyer has to learn the precedent. So everything is built on the US constitution and, and springs out from there. So we have to learn these things, but a lot of people are, are never taught this. Mm -hmm. So for them, it's rational to go to the ballot box and vote for someone who's ready to take over your bank. It's not rational. That's like that's like South American, Central American, banana <laughs> republic stuff, you know? Right. That's crazy Marxist stuff. And right. so we had to put a stop to it. Um, so I think it starts there, just understanding how far we've come and how freedom stealing the centralization of power really is. And also, and this is getting probably deeper than you want to be, but basically understanding government is the most dangerous force to man. There's no greater threat to, to a human being or mankind than a powerful government. If you look at the biggest atrocities in the world, whether it's wars, genocides, purges, all of that was, hap it was happening because a government mm -hmm. made it happen. Mm -hmm. Very few individuals are dangerous enough to wipe out an entire population. Very few. Yeah. It, 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 just I to cut you off. I'm actually, it's funny you bring up a uh, Marxism. I got a state and revolution right here by Lenin, and <laughs> he talked about. Uh, he has a fascinating quote, and he was frustrated um, when he was writing this that they were. He said, "If I can find it," um, he he was saying that uh, how they were handling the Marx and um, who's the other guy, Eccles, Ingalls. Anyways, um, he was saying that th that they are omitting the revolutionary nature of what they wanted to do. And he was quite frustrated with, uh, yeah, they omit, obliterate, and distort the revolutionary side of his teaching. It's revolutionary soul. Um, so I thought that was interesting, his comment on how they were teaching Marx way back then. Um, to your point, though, about, you know, government overreach, um, you know, I made a note the other day in the newsletter, um, you know, Hitler is probably the most infamous person of the 20th century, but he probably, I say probably, he doesn't have the most blood on his hands. The people with the most blood on his hands is probably Mao, and then yep. maybe Stalin, yeah. um, which interesting about those two is though the blood on their hand is mainly their own countrymen. So right. they don't get the same um, notoriety, notoriety, but you know, I'm saying that the same uh, level of attention because they killed a lot of their own people, whereas Hitler kind of rolled through uh, Europe. And so it kind of caught everybody's attention. But, but but a lot of people miss that, 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 that the biggest killers <laughs> in history are governments and usually their own people. It's not even foreign invasion. It's usually just their own people. If you look at the number that Mao and Stalin killed and combine those, um, I don't know who else would have killed more in the history of mankind because they killed, you know, what, 100 million people between two of them. It's a ton. It's a yeah. ton. And so yeah. um, it often gets it often gets overlooked. And so other thing on your point about the um, the founding of the nation, that's part of the reason the Electoral College is so important is that there's no reason for a small state to be a part of the of the United States beginning uh, if they couldn't have an electoral process. That was kind of the. The, the thought process or it kind of balanced it out for those folks. And we're, we're kind of forgetting that today in 2020 as well. For sure. Okay. So let's talk about um, the Paris climate accords uh, on regulation because um, you know, president Trump pulled out of those. Um, I'm sure you were a fan. I know I was definitely a fan. Um, and, and, you know, just kind of pull up to China, you know, go to China. There's a, there's a good reason <laughs> we're not in those things. Um, and, Generally, Jackie, let's kind of take it from a two-point perspective. What was bad about the Paris Climate Accords just on the impact of the U.S., but also maybe the hypocrisy that a lot of people kind of miss. Um, you know, you have, you know, now China and Russia are now on the U.N. Human Rights Council. It's like, I, I, okay, <laughs> okay. So I, I doubt, 
I doubt that they're going to be much help there, which leads me to the Paris Climate Accords. You're probably not going to do anything there either. It kind of all is connected when you look at how, how they run their countries. Did they replace Libya in Iran? They used to be on it, right? It's always Saudis the The Saudis didn't make it because uh, they killed that journalist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was, that's what kept them off. <laughs> it's always the worst of the worst put on the Human Rights Commission or whatever they renamed it. Um, and that's been true for as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Why does anyone take them seriously in the same way? Why would anyone take seriously the people at the UN who want us in this climate accord um, when they're saying at the meeting, actually it was our people, to be honest with you, uh, it was John Kerry and, and Al Gore mm-hmm. who were saying, China has now replaced the United States as the world leader in environmental policy. Mm-hmm. Okay, from, from that point forward, they should lose all credibility. No one should ever listen to a word they say again. That's outrageous. Um, as I told you, we have objectively the best air quality in the world of all advanced countries. You would have to go to remote island nations in the middle of the ocean mm-hmm. with a teeny fraction of our GDP to get better air quality. And a similar situation with water. Why on earth do we need to go be shackled and cuffed to the UN when we're the only country meeting the goals? Mm-hmm. Why, why, why are we being criticized? Why should we, and, and but this, the bigger question is why do you even need this agreement? when we're already meeting it. And the answer is they want us to hand over our sovereignty and some of our policymaking to this international body, which we should never do, should never do. Second, they want our money. This is a huge redistribution program. They wanna take money away from people who have it like us and give it to people who don't have it as much, who, as you say, you know what? They might not be the best people on earth, they might not have the best human rights record. They might not have the best environmental record and they might not make make any difference or care that you mm. hand them money. That might or might not make any difference. We've been through this before. Mm. Um, there's just no reason. So if they want to um, have a serious agreement, you know, where we don't hand over any power, we don't hand over any money, we're happy to advise, we're happy to export some uh, technology that will clean your air and sell you the stuff you need, or maybe I'm not even totally opposed to giving it away sometimes, (laughs) depending on what we're talking about. Right. But I won't speak for the rest of us, but I'm saying, you know, we had this agreement, as you know, China was obligated to do nothing for like 16 years. Mm -hmm. Why should anyone take this seriously? Mm -hmm. There was so much wrong with the agreement that even if, if you take the environment seriously and you're truly a committed environmentalist, you should be very unhappy with the Paris Climate Agreement too. And, and re- go beyond the talking points. Don't just listen to what Al Gore says. Take a look at, you know, at people who will give you a critical review mm-hmm. of what it's all about. Like people at the Texas Pu- uh, Public Policy Foundation did a great job studying the accord, writing it up, explaining why this is not the way to go. Mm-hmm. At, at least hear from the other side. Yeah, and I think one, one thing on that, uh, dealing with Africa, um, what, I, what I've seen there is that the U.S. and the, and the uh, Europeans, we kind of export our worst ideas out to these emerging markets. And so because we're giving them so much money, you know, you'll go down to, to up into Africa multiple times and you'll meet people who have, you know, two or three master's degrees. You're like, well, what is it that you do? It's like, well, whatever the job is, is not worth two or three master's degrees. We've kind of exported this notion of everyone needs a college degree and then a master's degree to these emerging markets and they don't have um, 
the the industry's built up to need that. They need a lot of electricians, a lot of plumbers, and those are we've those are great jobs. There's not, not more power to it. We need that. Um, and so when you look at the Paris Climate Accords, it's not only what would happen here, it's that mentality and exporting that out to the emerging markets. And we've seen that during the pandemic, a lot of these African nations and South American nations shut down uh, and people started to starve because they had, you know, $5 to their name. They didn't, it, it's like, okay, well, hold on, before we start exporting all our bad ideas out, <laughs> maybe we should, we should um, clean it up. And uh, I'm, I'm a little concerned when we have these multinational agreements because it does impact those emerging markets um, in ways that we don't think about because they kind of have to fall in line with what we're doing or they won't get the money that they're promised from the World Bank or whoever. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, they become bound as much as anyone becomes bound when the answers are pretty simple. The answers here were the answers there. It's competition, it's deregulation. And unfortunately, that's not going to happen in those countries because they have leaderships who are more interested in fleecing the people and, and benefiting themselves whether it's the natural resources they're selling out to who knows who and keeping the money for themselves, is the Swiss bank account or whatever they're doing. There's so much of that going on. And until somehow you change that dynamic and permit, you know, international companies to come in and compete, hire people, you know, build an economy, but that's not in the best interest of the dictator. So we've seen that since the beginning of time, since yeah. the beginning of world trade. So there's no doubt that the, multinational agreements mess up countries um, we've seen you know with brexit they're they're <laughs> how they're frustrated with it and I'm, they're not the only member of the eu that's expressed their frustration um the same thing applies here with the federal government and the states if you go back and look at the dakota access pipeline i believe um one of the tribes there that one of their frustrations was uh, the federal government had taken their land uh back in you know 1910 or whatever um the the tribe sued won the lawsuit they didn't get their land back but they were given money and they didn't take the money. And so they kind of, they kind of ignore the federal government's jurisdiction to put the pipeline in and get the permits and stuff like that. Um, it, that's, that's an issue that you see where this, this federal and state policy uh, to kind of bring it back home kind of runs in conflict where, where we have these, these, these things, these large pipeline, in this case, large pipeline project where it could be for the good of the nation. That's obviously the argument. Um, but it kind of gets in this tangled web of, of issues where, you know, you have these in these, in this case, an Indian tribe, you have the federal government and you have a lawsuit, you have the state. Um, this is kind of the one section. I don't really, I don't know if I disagree with you all, but I wanted to kind of flesh out how do you think about these issues? Because to me, um, I'm very concerned about anytime someone's property is taken from them by the government or a private company or one. However, if we didn't have it, we would never get anything done probably. So give me kind of how do you balance that? I want to talk through this because I think it's an important issue that conservatives or libertarians or, or whoever think through because we don't want to be willy-nilly in this. But we also yeah. have to realize that there has to be some solution. It's almost like, okay, we're going to give it to you, but we're going to be mad about it almost. So that's kind of how I think about it. How do you think about it? Okay, so it gets very complicated with the tribes, for starters. A lot of, you got you know hundreds of tribes. They've all got their own agreements. It's very complicated. So let me put that to the side for a second. If you just look at the, the state and federal government, it can get also very complicated because, as you mentioned a minute ago, the states are primarily responsible for policy impacting their land mm -hmm. inside the state, um, all property rights, basically. Mm -hmm. At the same time, in the federal government, you have 17 agencies that make energy policy. It's crazy. You might have a Department of Energy, but don't believe it's all over there. This can, it should be called the Department of Nuclear Energy, really. Yeah. I, I appreciate you putting that in the book because most people don't most people don't realize that. Yeah, it's there's only so much that goes on there. And uh, then 
probably the EPA makes more environmental policy than anyone else. Well, they didn't even exist until the 70s, mm. um, but, but everyone's involved. So you take the pipeline, for example, in Dakota Access, um, obviously you have the states doing what they do. So where do we cite the pipeline? Whose property is it? How do you compensate? Who decides the, the route? All that kind of stuff. Uh, then you have the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers are going to do their study, their environmental impact study. The Department of State has to weigh in because this pipeline is going to cross the international boundaries to Canada. Mm -hmm. And I'm just giving you, you know, the, the, ice, the tip of the iceberg of all Bert. the people who yeah, can Bert. jump in and object to something. Yeah. Um, so, and then there are federal statutes mm -hmm. that overlay, like NEPA. Um, so many. And then if you're going to do something with electricity, it's going to be FERC. I mean, it's yeah. so daggone complicated, but here's the point. Um, at bottom, when you're looking at pipelines and the question of, um, can we use eminent domain? Meaning the state is going to use its power to force a landowner to permit a pipeline to be run beneath their property, whether they like it or not, in exchange for just compensation is what the constitution requires. Your federal constitution and probably every state constitution, I would imagine. I'd be shocked if there were a single one that didn't. Okay, so you run into a few issues here. First, and I've had to have these fights. I mean, you can't believe what I've been through with <laughs> conservatives and libertarians because you have people on both sides of this thing. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they try to frame it like it's this little farmer versus big oil company. Okay, mm -hmm. put that to the side for a second. It might or might not be that at all. Mm -hmm. um, there are people who love for the pipeline to come through because they get paid. Right. You know, there are property owners who like that um, because here's the deal. There are over 2 million miles of pipeline in this country. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. Most of them have been around for our whole lives. Um, the Eastern Seaboard is one big pipeline matrix. Mm -hmm. you know, all of New York City is built on top of pipeline matrix. A lot of Texas is a pipeline matrix because all the pipelines come together down here to go to the refineries at the Gulf. So you and I are probably sitting on top of pipelines right now. Um, it's not interrupting our lives. And sometimes you'll hear conservatives say, well, the pipelines displace people and businesses and, you know, like this is Suzette Kilo in the 2005 Kilo case, right? And someone's going to come forcibly mow down her house that she inherited from grandma or whatever to build a casino. Okay, it's nothing like that. You may be temporarily dis disabused of the use of your property because they have to have, you know, machines out there to dig the three foot deep pipeline. But the pipeline Generally speaking, if it's a standard pipeline, they're going to be about three to four foot below the surface of the earth. Mm -hmm. So below plow depth. So if you're a farmer, you can continue to plow that land in theory if they do things right. Okay. So the question is, um, should you be able to object to having them dig across your land just because you don't want them on your land? I mean, as a general rule, as an American, you can do that. You can exclude anyone you want from your land. And you can decide the value of your land. The exceptions to that, so, so you can be as unreasonable as you want to be. The exceptions are, for example, where the government has a public use, um, not a public purpose per se, but a public use. So in other words, imagine you are a George Washington, you're living out there on Mount Vernon. If that happened to be the strategic promontory 
where you're, it's, it's where you're gonna start the defense of Washington DC 14 miles up the river. And the US Navy has to have that promontory to protect mm-hmm. the capital. They can take that land, even if George Washington doesn't want to sell it. Mm-hmm. So it's my example. Uh, so for military bases, it's very easy to explain why um, the government needs that land. And most people don't object, you know, because um, there are some things that can only happen in certain places. Well, how about this? If you take pipelines, you should think of them in terms of um, either a private pipeline or a utility pipeline or just your standard, um, uh, you know, oil pipeline company owns that pipeline and is using it for its business. Mm-hmm. These are three different types of pipeline. So you're going to think of them three different ways. Let's start with the first. Let's imagine you are Chevron and you have a lease in West Texas and you need to move um, your hydrocarbons from where you get them at the wellhead to a nearby pipeline operated by a pipeline company. If it's all on your property that you've leased or, or you own that property, it's a private pipeline. Fine. That's one thing. No in a domain involved. Um, if it's a utility. So in other words, you're moving natural gas around. Well, again, it's a pretty easy case to make. The city or the state or whatever, or the military needs this pipeline to get natural gas to where it needs to go to fuel the city or fuel the utility. Okay. That's a pretty easy case too. Where you have a problem is where, let's say a private company wants to lay a pipeline like Dakota Access um, across multiple jurisdictions. All these agencies, state and federal pile up on top. And so um, knowing that you can't run this country for 10 seconds without oil and gas Mm -hmm. and knowing that the safest way to move oil and gas is by pipeline. It's also the fastest. Um, Can you permit a single landowner to stop the course of a pipeline just because they don't, you know, it's their preference, they don't want it. When you know you're gonna run hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil a day through the pipeline. Here's what's interesting. I mean, what no one's really points out. This isn't really energy transfer partners, a company, versus that landowner. What you're trying to lay here is the piece of pipe that conceivably is going to carry oil that belongs to potentially thousands of people. So maybe you have, I mean, the people who own that resource, they might be, you might have a thousand different mineral interest owners or royalty owners or whatever, having their product pour into that pipeline. I'll tell you, what I'm trying to say, it's like a highway. It's more comparable to a highway. So you're a common carrier. So in in some places, what that means is if people want to use that pipeline in that shale play, you have to let them. So there are different different types of agreements, but I'm just saying, this is not energy transfer partners is not running their own oil through to a refinery. So it's I guess that's the best way to describe what I'm trying to say. It's more like a highway. And once you think of it as a highway, then you understand, okay, millions of people are relying on this product to stay alive, to stay alive and to run this economy and to make money because it's their oil or it's their refinery that needs it or whatever. There are millions of people who are vested in this piece of pipe. So is this a public use 
Some conservatives say yes, some conservatives say no, because it's still a pipeline owned by a private company. It would be like a highway that we can all use, but it's owned by a private company. So you can see why this gets a little complicated, but in terms of eminent domain law alone, um, we've had it around since the beginning of the country. And by now, the precedents are really well established. Mm -hmm. We know, you know, we know exactly how this works. Um, sometimes, a lot of times the fights are about people saying that they're not being justly compensated for the taking. Mm -hmm. They don't, they don't object to the taking. They want more money. That's a completely different fight. I might say that's a more common fight. Right. And that is a fact issue for the courts to find or whatever. It's not really a dispute about whether or not eminent domain is appropriate or appropriate in this situation. And I can see it. I can strongly make arguments in both directions for this. But mm -hmm. I'm going to say, if we permitted people to stand in the way of pipelines being built, and let's conceive of, in the case of every main pipeline routery, you know, you've got at least one person mm -hmm. who says, they might say, I object to the use of fossil fuels, even though they're using them all day and all night in their house every day of the week. But that's what they'll say. Right. Are we going to stop being a superpower and stop running our hospitals because these folks don't want that? I mean, I, that's how I see the situation. You could argue, I suppose, that fine, you can move um, oil, for example, in other ways, you don't need that pipeline. You can run it by rail, you can mm. run it by truck. Yes, you can. Um, in the case of the Dakota Access Pipeline, it's worth mentioning that I received reports from on the ground up there in North Dakota that the tribe that was loudest about protesting the building of the pipeline um, not only already had a pipeline running underneath that same body of water, but also they were running crude by rail through the reservation and the pipeline would have been competition for the crude by rail. Mm, interesting. So, yeah. uh, so let me, yeah. So I, I, I agree with the dilemma that you laid out. And so, you know, for my more libertarian friends, what I will toss to them and say, if you have no eminent domain, if you start up a anarcho capitalist society, um, that had the natural resources. You just take America. You start up as an anarcho capitalist society, and it's okay. We gotta have a refinery, okay? We gotta have a refinery, and we gotta have a pipeline. So, um, all it takes is a group of landowners to just a very narrow strip to band together, and you will never get a refinery built because you can't ensure that the pipeline will get there, and so you just can't do it. And so you're gonna. That it's not practical. So I'm not. I'm not advocating against it. Um, because it has to happen or it won't work. I agree. And also, I think that part of the problem you're seeing with, you know, um, Keystone or Dakota Access is that they're, that we, if we're not careful, we will lose companies wanting to invest because they're not sure that they can get their money back. And that's, that's a right. concern as well. Right. And at the same time, I want to make sure that we, we're, we're going, okay, hold on. It's, it's like, it's like taking your, your, uh, your medicine when you're a kid. You got to do it, but you don't like doing it because we don't want to make it too easy. And I'm not saying that it is right now because I, I mean, I work for pipeline companies and some of those guys are, are very excited when they get the condemnation on their, you know, the, the, the right away guys because they can get out there and they kind of throw their weight around the landowners like, hey, well, listen, you don't have to do whatever. We're just condemning you. What are you going to do? And, and so I don't like that either. Um, yeah. I know you, I, I know you don't. Um, and because, so, you know, there's there's levels as you mentioned so you get like the ceo of etc but then you have the right-of-way guy out there and the right-of-way guy's got nothing to do whether it's common carrier or not it's is or it isn't and and he's got to get his job done um and so i think this this the the balance of making sure that we're talking about it responsibly like we, we've got to have it it's almost like a necessary evil but we don't make it too easy because then listen 
private corporations do bad things too. And they will, they will start making excuses like, oh, well, this is a necessary thing. You got to have this, da, 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 and, and, and they don't need it. So that's kind of the, I think you did a good job of articulating kind of the, the, the issue at hand. Um, but it's something that I think sometimes we get too, we're too quick to say, yes, we need it. Yes, we need it, but <laughs> let's be careful that we're not um, taking, because once you take the land as a pipeline, you know, you can't build on top of it. So the land is useless. I mean, you can farm it, but if you want to put your shed out there, you can't go put your shed out there. If you want to build a trailer park, you can't put, you know, so it, it does become kind of voided land minus the one-time stipend you got for it. And so there's some consideration with that as well, that, that, that that's it. But I, I do agree that you can't let one landowner um, take it. And then you get into the question of how much you have to work around one landowner. And those are, you know, case by cases, but it's, it's something I wanted you to tease out because it is a, the point of contention where I always try to, only gas friends and say, remember, you know, the more power you give away, the more likely it will be used against you. We yeah. need this, but we need to we need to make sure that we are constantly um, pushing back against like, you, you sure you need this? This is right. We're, we're, we work with these people. We do this the right way. Because if not, it will become where it's just, you know, carte blanche in a domain for pipelines. And that's what that's not good for the industry. It gives us a bad look and it works against us. So um, that's kind of my thoughts. But I do agree with a lot of, a lot of what you said. It's just it feels like today. Um, you know, either you can't have it or it's, 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 it's people kind of forget the nuance of, of what's going on there. And the tribe thing is, as you mentioned, the tribes are so interesting because the arguments they come up with, like their treaty, the Fort Laramie treaty and this treaty and that treaty. And you're like, Oh my gracious, I gotta, you know, read like 16 history books just to understand what they're talking about. <laughs> you know, yeah. girl. <laughs> it's the world unto itself. That kind of law is unto itself. I, I was able to go fishing with um, the former Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, not too long ago. And I mean, he laid out for me like how many tribes there are, how many he visited, some of the differences in law. I mean, you would need, we would need 24 hours with Ryan Zinke <laughs> to like, lay it all out. It's super complicated. What was happening in North Dakota is that it wasn't just the tribe that was directly impacted, right? They had like tribes from 200 miles away yeah. getting involved right. to register an objection. Um, it became very popular, uh, well, for a while. In the end, it was not popular with the tribe, the Standing Rock Sioux, because you no, might remember, yes, yes. they um, unelected their tribal leader who got them in that mess. Mm -hmm. Because what happened, what happened was, um, imagine this that you're in a remote area of the dakotas and the tribe had their uh, nearby a casino well the casino lost millions of dollars because it turns out people don't like to drive across burning bridges that the protesters have set aflame right or risk their own life going through you know armed masses some mm -hmm. of these people had molotov cocktails and firearms at the protest nobody wants to brave that to get to a casino so all the business went to the other tribes yep. and this made them mad. And they're like, whoa, whoa, this is not what we wanted. So <laughs> they got rid of that guy. They got a new guy. Okay. Well, the book is Making Government Work. Your, I had it open here. I closed it now. Your chart on chapter, well, I didn't have chapter number, but page 131. And we are going to give away an autographed copy from Jackie, right? And so we will get that to, I got to pick a winner. I don't know. I got to get my little deal out to pick a winner and so we'll get that out here in the next couple weeks i i haven't announced this publicly yet i'll tell you jackie and then the, the folks listening i will actually be I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow i'm flying to milwaukee and i'm going to milwaukee 
to Chicago. I'm going all down the East Coast interviewing people about what they, you know, who they're voting for, what they want to mask, all of this stuff. And then I'm going to be in D.C. for the election. And so I'm, uh, I, I will pass a copy of this out to <laughs> all the folks, all the folks in D.C. on Election Day. Uh, be sure to, to recommend them to go read this. It would be a good start for most of them. This book says, get back in your lane, find your own business, you know, come and take it. Uh, this is, by the way, we have former Governor uh, Rick Perry writing for the book, Rick Santorum, um, um, Kathy Ireland, Chuck Norris. Yeah, Chad Kathy Kennedy. Ireland caught me off guard. I, I was like, okay, Kathy Ireland, that's not the model, is it? I would look it up like, no, okay. that's the model. <laughs> I did not expect that. an activist now. So I did not know that. Back out there, yeah. Uh, but there are a lot of policymakers in here. Um, some people you've heard of, some people you haven't. Mm-hmm. You know, one is like a law professor, my friend Brad Smith, um, who's an expert on election law, used to be a federal appointee. Just stuff, you know, people with, with good credentials uh, to lay out various policy areas. So check it out, Making Government Work, forward by Nikki Haley. Yeah, and it's got Chuck Norris. And so, you Chuck know, Norris. Chuck Norris, there it goes. So congratulations on this. Where can people find you at if they want to listen to your show? You, you Once you plug that again, that's on The Blaze. You're also yes. the Texas Public Policy Foundation or anywhere else? Yeah, so if you want to listen to the Jackie Daly Show, which is J-A-C-K-I, daily as in every day, you can find me at JackieDaily.com. You can find me on Parlor and Twitter at Jackie Daly Show, Facebook, Instagram, and then on podcast everywhere. iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, and many others. Okay. Listeners, thank you so much. And once I get to Milwaukee, I will release another podcast and a newsletter about what's going on there. And we'll talk to you then.